Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people, with news, views and expert interviews. Hello, I'm Steve Randall. Welcome to Constructive Voices as we continue building our conversation about biodiversity. BNG, Biodiversity Net Gain, is a really positive step. Whether 10% does enough, I suspect 10% improvement uh, through development stops the rot, so it stops further degradation. But actually, it's only when we get to 20, 30% biodiversity net gain that we can start to see some reversal of some of the damage that we've done, you know, in, in, in the last two, 300 years. That's sustainability lawyer Ben Stansfield. We'll be meeting him shortly. Constructive Voices media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland. Now, normally on Constructive Voices, I'm joined by Peter Finn, Pete the Builder, but he's busy with a secret project, which maybe we'll find out about on the next episode. But we do have a fantastic guest. Ben Stansfield is a sustainability lawyer. And we're going to be talking about the uncertainty in the industry about the upcoming BNG laws, which are being introduced in the UK and quite likely will be rolled out elsewhere in the following months and years to come. Ben talks about the appetite and willingness to come on board within the industry, but also says that more information and adjustment time is required. Overall, he believes the future is brighter for nature recovery if the laws work as they appear they will. So let's meet Ben. He's been talking to Jackie DeBurka. My name's Ben. I am half planning lawyer, half environmental lawyer. So I spend a lot of my time getting consents and approvals for clients wishing to undertake sort of energy infrastructure and large projects uh, and creating and establishing new sustainable communities. And then the rest of my time I spend sort of doing projects like sort of biodiversity, landscape recovery, and dealing with you know emissions to to air, to water, to contamination and so forth. I've been doing this for about 22 years now. I'm going to read you a quote. We're in a biodiversity crisis and biodiversity net gain is such an important policy in stopping the destruction of habitats and ecosystems. Does that sound familiar to you? It does. It does. Someone very I borrowed it. I borrowed it from one of your LinkedIn posts. <laughs> I thought it was excellent and very, very much on point. Talk to me a little bit about your feelings about this. Let's go back 10,000 years. We were 60% forests, 40% grasslands. Uh, and then we learned how to farm and we learned how to develop. And you can kind of see that, you know, in the last, uh, you know, since, I guess, you know, since 5,000 years ago when we first started farming, this, we started changing the the environment and habitats which we lived. And so now we're at the point where we've lost one third of our forests. We've lost three quarters of our grassland and shrubs. And we've replaced that with the built environment, which is actually only about 1% globally. And the remaining 45% of our land is used for agricultural purposes. So it's a lot of monoculture, you know, grazing land for, for livestock and obviously growing crops for human consumption as well. So BNG, biodiversity net gain, is a really positive step. Whether 10% does enough, I suspect 10% improvement uh, through development stops the rot. So it stops further degradation. But actually, it's only when we get to sort of 20, 30 biodiversity net gain that we can start to see some reversal of some of the damage that we've done you know in, in, in the last two three hundred years so possibly before you were alive back in 1973 badgers Just. became somewhat protected and the law was weak but it was actually updated later in 1992 since then and coming up to 2021 can you give us a brief 
synopsis of environmental laws that would be pertinent to the built environment? Crumbs, that's that's a, an exam question. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what, yeah, we, I mean, we've had environmental laws in the UK and England and Wales, you know, since the Industrial Revolution with, you know, smoke acts and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, being in a a densely populated island, I think, has been very positive for environmental law compared to some parts of the world where, you know, space uh, hasn't been such an issue. But I kind of think that environmental law really came of age, I guess, well, certainly in the UK, I guess in, in, in Europe, uh, we had all sorts of framework directives in the 70s and 80s, but I think it sort of really sort of took, got into top gear around sort of 2000, 2001, when we introduced new uh, legislation around liability for contaminated land. And that suddenly put environmental law and liability on the sort of on the, on the boardroom agenda so when people were buying businesses were buying sites and what have you there was potential that they might take a liability for environmental harms that they hadn't caused and so all of a sudden there was sort of this dramatic growth uh, in environmental law because people were suddenly very concerned about it at a top level and i guess since then you know environmental law and liabilities have sort of ebbed and ebbed and flowed a little bit and we've you know we had emissions trading and then environmental lawyers became energy lawyers and what have you so so it's moved around a, a bit we've had nature preservation and protection laws for some time but it, my sense is that interest in preserving and enhancing nature has only really come about probably in, in the last two or three years it's sort of we've, we've been focusing on net zero and decarbonization and carbon dioxide for a long time it's only I, I guess in the past couple of years as i say that that nature and biodiversity are starting to become top table issues why do you think that is ben out of curiosity I mean, I, I guess it's partly driven by the sort of the ESG movement that you know a lot of people are looking at businesses more holistically in terms of looking what their impact are, and businesses are wanting to tell a good story to their stakeholders. And I think when businesses and large organisations say we're going to go net zero by 2030 or 2040 or 2050, if you drill down, that's a bit of a it's a bit of a difficult message to sell because you're saying. I'm going to stop polluting in 10 years' time or 20 years' time. I'm going to turn off my carbon taps in future. Whereas enhancing biodiversity, restoring nature, looking at your impact on the natural world, that's something you can do tomorrow. And that's a really positive story to tell your customers, to your employees, to your shareholders and what have you. So I think the immediacy of nature is quite attractive for big business. Would you think COVID had anything to do with it at all because of the experiences people had? people getting out in nature every day and clear skies and so forth. I'm sure that plays a big part of it. Yeah, it likely does. But I think, you know, we were talking about sustainability for a little while before COVID, but I think, uh, yeah, I guess we've come back to the office uh, as it were since then and, and, and really focused on the world in which we live in. I guess a lot of people living in the UK would agree that, you know, many, many significant changes of recent years can be linked to Brexit. So moving away from COVID for a second, obviously. Mm -hmm. And the Environmental Act of 2021, it probably falls into that because, of course, that was due to Brexit, wasn't it? It's certainly got provisions within it which respond to Brexit. So one of the the tasks uh, that the Europe 
European Commission did very effectively was to sort of to take member state governments to task when they failed to keep to their environmental uh, targets and failed to comply and implement environmental laws properly. So one of the big pillars, I guess, of the Environment Act was to establish the Office for Environmental Protection, the OEP. So whose role is a little bit like the European Commission was to keep an eye on government, make sure that it's doing what it said it would do and take public bodies to task if they don't. So that was a post-Brexit mechanism. But the Environment Act does a lot more than that, you know. Biodiversity net gain is, again, another big plank of the Environment Act. Uh, that's not a Brexit solution or um, uh, that wasn't a Brexit problem that we needed to fix. That was uh, that was something else. So as a framework law, Ben, the Act is only a foundation and obviously it's going to rely on further targets and policies and more detailed rules that are right now still to be, be developed. Isn't that the case? Yes, that's right. So a lot of our law comes, yes, we have the framework legislation, but all the detail uh, will come in secondary legislation. So we talk about, you know, the Environment Act is primary legislation, but then we've got these orders and regulations which have a lot of the detail within them and and then uh, associated with that guidance, statutory guidance and, and, and what have you as well. So, yeah, a lot of the detail will come subsequently in in the secondary legislation when the details and the and the the devilers and the details as we all know um come these will have to be strong enough and very effectively enforced to you know to protect people's health and the environment really for the act to fulfill its full purpose how do you feel this will affect both your legal practice and also some of the clients you're currently dealing with i can genuinely look everyone who i meet in the eye and say that none of my clients, and I've, and I've certainly in 22 years never felt that any of my clients are trying to do the wrong thing. Occasionally they get caught up, they, they, they might misinterpret a regulation, they might not know about it, but I don't know of anyone who is really trying to pull a fast one and, and cause environmental degradation uh, with intent. Now I'm, I'm I may be lucky, but I think I think my sense is that you know most environmental lawyers might feel like that. So I I, I don't think this will uh, you know new duties, new, new new rules and what have you will make them change their ways. I think it's it's you know it's it's sort of an education process. It's just you know there there is more regulation, there is more obligations, more requirements for them to take account of. So I don't see the Environment Act as sort of something that my clients will be fearing. I think they just will have to spend time getting their heads around it and understanding the tighter regime that they might now be subject to. Um, and, you know, the, the, the more creative we'll be thinking, well, how can we develop new business models? How can we change our business to, to, to benefit and have a competitive advantage uh, in this sort of new or developing world of, of, of tighter regulation? You know, looking at your profile and LinkedIn and all, the, all of the research I've done prior to our chat today, you know, you're obviously very um, hopeful and optimistic about what what could be achieved. What do you feel, Ben, are the biggest opportunities for biodiversity and net gain in the UK? I am. It is difficult to be sort of uh, glass half full all the time. And I'm, I'm always very conscious that sometimes I get a bit Eeyore-ish about this uh, and what have you. But I think my overall sense is it's a real privilege to be working in this sector at the moment because, you know, as a society and as a bunch of professionals, we will we'll either fix this or stuff it up in the next 10, 15, 25 years. So to be a 
part of that community trying to fix it and 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 create long-term environmental hope i think is there's never been a better time uh, to be uh, working in the environmental field and i think in in relation to biodiversity this is probably the first major policy in in england which is trying to establish a, a nature market it's a discussion for people far more intelligent uh, and articulate than me as to whether we should be putting a price on nature and and, and getting business which arguably has been the you know, the, the cause of some of uh, the degradation of the natural world, uh, you know, whether we should be entrusting business to to fix it. But, you know, we are where we are. And I think I think there's a massive interest in nature, the biodiversity, you know, improving biodiversity in establishing nature markets, getting business involved with, 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 with fixing that problem. So I think it is tremendously exciting at the moment. Talking about nature markets, which I, I, I definitely want to talk about it in more detail a little bit later on, Ben. Just going back to, let's say, I don't know your clients, obviously, but let's say it's a developer, for example. The act, when it comes fully into effect, it's going to potentially create a radical shift in the approach to development, both rurally and, you know, in an urban setting. Specifically to that, Ben, what are your hopes and predictions around that? The way the the biodiversity net gain regime has been set up is that you know the, the, there are a number of ways in which you can improve your, your biodiversity you can do it on site whether that's sort of within the grounds of your building or on the building or you can do it off-site you can buy units from third party uh third parties who are creating biodiversity units for sale or you can buy credits from the sector of state so there's a number of different ways you can satisfy your obligation but i really hope that developers look at this the thrust of the the rules and say okay this isn't a matter of uh, paying or buying our way out of trouble buying some credits so that we can do an offset i really hope that's not the mentality i really want this to trigger a shift in terms of how we design uh, our built environment and how we incorporate nature uh, and biodiversity into the way in which we live and Absolutely, there's some fantastic ways to improve biodiversity with with offsite, and I think that you know absolutely got its place. But I hope that we can look at how we can sort of bring green into our urban spaces much more. It's such a, a remarkable time in our history, Ben and um, Jane Findlay, who's the immediate past president of the Landscape Institute. She did an episode, a few episodes before yours, and she will be involved in the training that we're making around BNG. And she is fabulous talking about the link between our own health and obviously biodiversity and nature. And it's just such a a massive and a fascinating topic that that alone, you'd imagine, should be just enough to win the case for people like you and I. Yeah, no, I entirely agree. Have you looked at BNG in, in other countries? If so, how do you feel our ambitions in the UK compared to other countries? We have looked uh, to see if there are other countries who are adopting uh, similar rules. Um, I'm sure listeners will go, well, if he doesn't mention this particular country, then he doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't think there are many. Uh, well, I, I'm going to be even bolder. I don't, I don't think there are any systems quite like this. There are, there are other 
countries. I think Australia was looking at something similar recently. And I know that the EU is uh, looking closely at how this works in England. It's quite nice to think of this might be one of our big Brexit successes, actually, that we can um, transfer you know, environmental legislation sort of back across the channel. So, yeah, I, th- I think there are a lot of eyes on, on, on this to see how successful it will be. It is a nice position to be in, particularly if people run with it in the way that you Uh, feel optimistic and hopeful about you know what about nature recovery strategies are they a further burden for the local authorities do you think or are they something that's really integral to all of this you know working together properly interesting one so i think there is likely to be a bit of a disconnect between the nature recovery strategies and bng with perhaps I seem to recall that the nature recovery strategies are more of a county council issue rather than a local planning authority, uh, you know, municipality issue. So I think there's a real opportunity to join the two and to think about how particularly off-site BNG solutions can be incorporated and supplement and enhance and all that kind of stuff, nature recovery strategies. But I, I do fear that left hand doesn't speak to right hand. Um, so hope I'm wrong, but I, I, I think there needs to be, for it to really succeed and, and, and take off, there will need to be better relationships between county and LPA. Mm-hmm. Okay, I agree with that. Now, let's just veer away from sort of like, you know, your own opinion and possibilities as the, as to the outcomes of, of when the law is fully enforced and so on, uh, in a positive sense. Putting your legal eagles hat on, what do you feel, Ben, are just going through different um, people within built environment? What do you feel are going to be the potential legal pitfalls if you, you're dealing with a small developer? Biodiversity net gain has been delayed for smaller developments, so up to up to nine residential units, or I think it's a thousand square meters of commercial space, uh, and, and until some point next year. So they they will have an advantage in that they will be able to sort of stand to the side and watch the, the larger schemes and see how that all, all, all washes out. Um, and I and I think a lot of the, the, the issues here will be around um, discussions with planning officers as to where biodiversity is to be delivered. Is it going to be on-site or can they go to an off-site solution? I think the real legal issue around biodiversity net gain is what the, the, the agreements which will be used to secure the delivery and maintenance for 30 years of the biodiversity works will say you know i've got you know my own views uh, as to how onerous those obligations are likely to be mm-hmm. um but we're waiting or hoping that defra and government will will give us some model if not model clauses but some 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 ideas as to how how rigorous they expect the the, the agreements to be because these are going to be really onerous as as they rightly should be okay you know to, to, to protect nature and ensure that the uplifts are um are, are, are properly delivered over 30 years uh and i and i think that for smaller developers they will be perhaps a difficult thing to get their heads around and there will potentially be a reluctance whether large or small developers to put those conservation covenants and section 106 obligations on their land on their developments Mm-hmm. Um, that raises all sorts of questions in terms of who's going to be responsible for uh, the, the maintenance, the monitoring for 30 years. How do we ensure there's enough funding available? How do we ensure that the the biodiversity is replanted, for example, when we have a terrible storm in year 11, all that kind of stuff. So I think um, I, I think that's a probably 
applicable to all developers, but small in particular will, will find that tricky. I think it is tricky. Obviously, it's tricky. And that's one of the subjects that has come up with Claire Wansbury when we're making plans uh, around podcasts and training and so on, that, you know, the law and the fallout from the law, the, the positive you know, possibilities from the law, that's all very nice. But who's going to maintain it? Who's going to be the, who are the caretakers here? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that needs to be addressed in these conservation covenants. And it needs to be done to the satisfaction, essentially, of the local planning authority who are going to be signing off a biodiversity game plan before a developer can, can start works. And I suspect that those biodiversity game plans and therefore the underlying conservation covenants and what have you will be really closely scrutinised by objectors. It just introduces a whole new layer of risk uh, mm. for the development industry as to you know, when they can uh, have the certainty that their developments can proceed. And then the next question, I guess, Ben, would be, I know it's hard to think about right now because there's enough, enough to take on board, I suppose, at the moment, but you know, what happens at the end of the 30 years? They're looking at the landowners, you know, re-agreeing to similar terms. How's that going to work, do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we're seeing some landowners who are reluctant to, to to enter into these obligations for 30 years and so would rather transfer their land to a developer and say, look, you mm-hmm. know, you just buy it, buy it from me and it's your problem in 30 years time. Because it, it's, it's kind of hard, isn't it, to envisage that after 30 years, you're going to be able to do anything with that land other than continue a biodiverse use. You know, it's not like you're going to be able to take out that habitat and build something i just don't think that's likely so the guidance or the rather the government's response to its consultation say well we're alive to this and what we can do instead is you could rebaseline your site uh in 30 years time or, or at the end of these covenants uh, and you could do some additional uh, improvements and you can create more biodiversity units and, and and sell those as well and that's that's almost analogous to the renewable energy industry where you know, onshore wind farm developers would uh, repower their schemes. They'd take, the, take out the old turbines and put new modern ones in, which are more efficient, larger capacity, all that kind of stuff. And so I think we will see, you know, a sort of a, a repowering uh, of biodiversity gain sites in 30 years' time. But um, my sense is that once once land is in the BNG regime, it's going to be very difficult to take it out. Sure. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, obviously, apart from what we've just discussed, are there any other sort of pitfalls that you think the larger developers are going to be aware of at this time? You know, there's still very significant uncertainty as to the nuts and bolts of the regime. And that is causing frustration, mm-hmm. uh, you know, particularly for developers of large schemes, which will be delivered in phases. So you might have a sort of a, a large housing estate, which is built as, you know, three or four phases and, 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 and what have you. you might require lots of infrastructure up front. And I, th- I think there's a, an anxiety that local planning officers will require too much of the biodiversity net gain works to be delivered up front. So I think this will all wash out and we'll all get completely comfortable with it in two or three years time everyone will know what market practice is and 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 it will and it will be a success it has to be a success but i think i think you know government is nervous to avoid um a bit like we had with feeding tariffs do you remember when we had the ground mounted solar and roof mounted solar projects and and feeding tariffs were too generous and the the rules had to be changed they were changed on an almost weekly or or monthly basis Mm -hmm. and we really don't want to go through that again you know this is the biggest thing to happen i think in the 
to to the development industry in in years. So it's got to be right, and they've got to get it right first time. Inherently, they need the flexibility to change it if it isn't. But I just I just think they want this certainty, the regulatory certainty, so everyone knows what the rules are. And so I think there's a lot of information still missing, which is. I'd rather have the right information than have have them rush it. But I think there are, yeah, we don't know what irreplaceable habitat means. We don't know what the biodiversity game plan needs to um, contain. We don't know what the regulations, you know, which will really put the nuts and bolts around this framework, what, what, what they look like and whether they'll be issued for consultation or whether they'll simply be made. So I think there are, without wishing to get Rumsfeld in, you know, there are, there are things we don't know and we, mm-hmm. things we know we don't know, but there will be, uh, there will be traps uh, that we, we haven't even yet thought of. If you've got a client who's an ecologist who's working on behalf of at their own client, obviously, they need advice on BNG. Now, taking into account that you've already identified that there are a large number of unknowns, yep. but what sort of direction would you be taking? What would you be looking out for with that client? So I think what's really important where there is regulatory uncertainty as an advisor is to be saying the same thing to your clients irrespective of, of who they are. So if I'm advising a local planning authority, I should be saying to them the same thing as I am to, to developers. And we've got planning is 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 often confrontational and competitive and it's officers thinking that developers are trying to pull a fast one and developers thinking that planning officers are trying to cause delay and don't understand and all this kind of stuff. And I think mm-hmm. I think for something which has such fundamentally important aims as BNG does, you know, forget who, who our client, our real client's nature. And I know that sounds, you know, very sort of tree huggery and, and all this kind of stuff. But, but it's, actually, the tru- it's the truth right yeah, now because well, without it we're without it we're not doing very well. Exactly right. So I so so I think I would like to think that I would be giving the same advice on the regime to to ecologists, to developers, to, to, to planning officers. And I think it has to be a really collaborative approach between us all as to what a robust solution looks like. And we won't have all the answers and there will be gaps in conservation covenants and there will be assumptions made in biodiversity baselines. And no one really knows how it's going to work, but let's just do something that's robust, that's fair, that's justifiable and defensible. And yeah, it might not be 100% right, but it's going to be good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think my advice to my fellow professionals, ecologists or officers or other lawyers is, is kind of to, to forget what side you're on. Just think about what gives the best results for nature within a commercial context, obviously. Sure. Okay. Now, obviously, BNG is going to be applied also to nationally significant infrastructure projects. Mm. Any different perspectives here? Because I imagine, you know, this is just a bigger version of obviously a hugely bigger version of what you've just said. But is there anything else that you would like to say about it? Yeah, no, you're right. It's it's uh, the infrastructure planning regime will be subject to BNG, and it'll be sort of like town and country planning BNG, but on steroids. You know, the site <laughs> the sites will be just much bigger. The impacts could be, you know, the long and thin projects, whether it's a road, a rail, or something like that, a pipeline. That's going to make assessment more tricky. There's going to need to be land take potentially, so potentially compulsory acquisition of land in order to deliver biodiversity gain which is going to be really controversial because typically obviously 
you know, compulsory acquisition is for acquiring land that's absolutely necessary for that project and there's no alternative and all that kind of stuff. So I suspect there'll be greater use of compulsory purchase powers um, for that. I think, and that will be controversial. I think typically a lot of uh, large infrastructure projects uh, might have a marine element. So there'll be a, a marine a marine net gain is, a, is, a, is another discussion. But yeah, I, I think we will see all these issues come to the fore and, 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 and in sort of greater concentrations than we do with town and country planning. But it's it's from November 25. So again, we'll have that learning from the town and country planning regime that we can take into NSIPs um, and hopefully we'll hit the, the infrastructure biodiversity net gain with a bit more confidence and a bit more understanding as to what's really going to happen. Absolutely. Now, Ben, we touched on a little while ago, nature markets. Mm. Do, would you like to talk about the link between nature markets and BNG law? I know you have, you did make a statement and I don't disagree with that either. You know, the, the idea of the commercial world, you know, being kind of dragged into this, you have your doubts about it. I don't know, is there any avoiding it? Because I actually understand what you're saying. But let's talk about the link and how, how, how it could work if it goes positively. Yeah, so I think the government has estimated or, or, or set a target that it wants to get, I think it's something like £500 million worth of investment into nature in England and Wales or the UK by the sort of mid to late 20s. And I think up to a, a billion pounds worth of investment um, by 2030. And so, you know, quite rightly, it says, where does that money come from? And it can only really come from the commercial world, from, from finances, investors, developers, and so forth. So the concept of the nature markets is to require business, well, maybe not require, maybe sometimes it doesn't, maybe it's done on a voluntary basis, but to essentially make our, our, our nature produce something that people want to buy. So, so, so here we've got for biodiversity net gain. That's a nature market. It's saying developers are under a requirement to 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 to, to do something to 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 either generate or purchase their own biodiversity gain units or credits from the Secretary of State. And how are those created? Well, they're created by people doing things in in in, in, in with land that improves biodiversity that can be. Uh, accurately assessed uh, and, and and valued and sold, and so we're seeing it with biodiversity net gain. We're seeing it with carbon sequestration in woodlands and peatlands. We've seen it with nutrient neutrality for a little while, which hasn't quite been a wild west, but it certainly hasn't been as closely regulated uh, as biodiversity net gain will be. So, mm-hmm. I think you know, uh, I, I, I do think business is 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 the right body. Uh, you know, broad body and in industry to 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 do this. Um, I think it's probably the only solution as well. Um, so I think it's um, and, and and as I say, every, every business that I've come across wants wants to improve its nature, you know, its footprint and impact on, on on the natural world. So I just think we just need to really make sure that we do proper monitoring and auditing and and, and ensuring that the gains that have been promised are, are properly delivered. Obviously, that's massively important, Ben. What what do you think? are the most important considerations when creating a biodiversity net gain plan? For someone undertaking development and, and, and being subject to BNG and how they would satisfy yes. it? Yes. Obviously, you know, in, in, in terms of deliverability and, and, and making sure they've got, you know, the appropriate land rights and all that kind of stuff. 
you know, it's obviously having the, 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 the right professional team around you who is, who is able to design and deliver a, 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 a scheme that's going to be sufficiently robust to deliver the gains you need it to. Um, I, I think funding will be a, a, a real issue. So ensuring that there are funds available uh, for, for, for future years to again do the monitoring and maintenance um, and, and and re-delivery in in certain circumstances mm-hmm. and I think having a really good relationship with either your responsible body uh, which is essentially going to be your regulator in the conservation covenant world or your local planning authority if you're going down 106 mm-hmm. because there will be failures you know we, we you're, you're writing a plan in year zero uh, which if all goes well, we'll deliver the gains, uh, sorry, deliver the improvements in biodiversity uh, over 30 years. And that th- there will be mistakes in that. There will be problems and they need to be flexible, need to sort of have open, sensible dialogue uh, with, between landowners, funders and regulators or, 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 or bodies responsible for overseeing the works to, to make sure that those changes can be made sensibly without... Um, hair triggers on enforcement you know the last uh, complete disaster if if developers and landowners are uh, have injunctions um taken against them or mm-hmm. subject to, to to fines and 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 what have you when actually a slightly more mature slightly more measured approach to enforcement is needed so i think i think having again it comes back to collaboration doesn't it but really sensible relationships and mature relationships with with all parties to make sure that things are delivered and if and if they don't work a, a, a different approach is taken collaboratively certainly yeah i think that's really important ben now almost one of the last questions and it's kind of a funny one but given everything that you've talked about in our chat today if you were to run a training course for your clients, specifically for the new law, how would that look? Um, <laughs> lots of pictures. <laughs> no. Very good. I yeah. Well, I I think you know when when we do BNG training, we we talk a lot about how, what your strategy is going to be in terms of where you're going to deliver it. Are you going to do it on site or off site? Essentially, if you're doing it off site, how do you do it? If you do it on site, what are the various considerations to make there? And what are the pros and cons of each? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's often quite a surprise. I think a lot of developers just think, oh, we'll, 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 we'll do an on-site solution. Um, and actually, that's not always going to be the best for nature. So I think that's what our sessions look like. Now, finally, Ben, I know that you would prefer to have an optimistic answer to this, but what do you think the future of biodiversity net gain in the UK looks like? I genuinely think it's bright. I think we'll start at 10%. We'll have some ups and downs. There'll be people throwing their toys out of the pram saying, oh, I told you it didn't work. Uh, but I think overall it will succeed. I think we'll have schemes that go beyond 10%. I think we'll have some that go below. And I think people will realize, actually, this is really good. It makes my development look more attractive. It's great for my ESG credentials. It's really not tricky to do everyone knows how we're doing it now so we might go voluntarily to 15 percent or 20 percent and local authorities will start to put their own local planning uh, uh, supplementary planning uh, policies together and decide that they want to go to 20 percent then we might start to see the mandatory numbers ratcheting up 
And I think it has the potential to just get better and better and better. And then we'll see people doing uh, similar schemes to biodiversity net gain, but slightly unregulated and selling those units to, you know, corporates and large businesses who are wanting to uh, improve the impact uh, that they have on nature as well. So I, I think this is the start of something that's going to be really quite successful. Well, that's excellent to hear you say that. I'm, I'm not entirely surprised. And if I think, as you've mentioned a few times during our chat, Ben, if collaboration is, you know, front and center, um, I think it does have the potential you've just talked about. Yeah. Well, let's cross our fingers. Our thanks to Ben Stansfield for being our guest on this episode of Constructive Voices. And the conversation around biodiversity and the BNG laws have also been covered on some previous episodes. So if you haven't heard those yet, it's worth going back to listen. And that's all for this episode of Constructive Voices. Please take a moment to share it with others who may find it interesting. Follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes automatically on your favourite podcast app and rate and review the podcast if you can. You can also listen to the latest episode by saying, Alexa, play Constructive Voices podcast. Here's Constructive Voices. Here's the latest episode. And on our website where there's lots more information too. That's constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Mm-hmm.